Father, as we come to this new event in the book of Genesis tonight, as we look at the flood, um, as we look at the result of the flood and the covenant, uh, we look to your sovereignty and we ask that your Holy Spirit um, show us your power and how your attributes were manifested in this event as a momentous global thing that all societies remember deep in their subconscious. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we go uh, into the lesson itself, I, uh, one of the uh, people that attend regularly this class has a very um, widespread reading diet. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting, he was just pointing out how we're talking about how the pagan mind resents the Christian faith. And in America, it's fashionable for the pagans to hide behind the so-called First Amendment, separation of church and state, supposedly, and so forth. And it's an article in the Washington Times of the 3rd of April uh, about B.C., the comic strip. And uh, evidently, Johnny Hart, whose comic had been running in the Los Angeles Times since 1968, uh, has sinned in that he has been running cartoons with religious overtones and the culmination event came when he had a comic strip uh, uh, for Good Friday, evidently, about the suffering prince. And the L.A. Times refused to print the cartoon for fear that it might be offensive. So, and I mean, it's, this is how silly this thing gets. Of course, we could print uh, quasi-pornographic material and it would be perfectly acceptable because nobody cares if it offends the Christians in the community. It's just when we offend certain other people that it becomes an issue. Okay, um, let's go to the, our event that we are looking at in Genesis, the end part of Genesis chapter 8 and chapter 9. So why don't we start there in the text tonight um, and look at what happened after the flood. This constitutes the last event that we're going to look at for this part of the series, this uh, fall and spring, winter series. Uh, we will follow this chapter up with four appendices that some people have asked, well, you keep referring to these appendices, where are they? Um, one will be on uh, some interpretive problems in Genesis. The other one will be on biology, biological problems. The third one will be on geological problems in the um, no, third one will be on uh, astrophysics and that sort of thing, the day of the universe. And then the fourth one will be uh, dealing with uh, geological problems. Not extensively, but just the overall debate, where it's headed and what some of the issues are. Okay, if you look at Genesis chapter uh, 8, verse 20, after the flood subsides, uh, we have an act of worship. And... Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And you'll notice the sequence. You have a sacrifice in verse 20. Then in verse 21, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. 
the fear of you and the terror of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all of you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its blood, that is, its blood, uh, with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. From every man I will require it. From every man's brother, the life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons. I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And then it goes on to describe the sons and so forth. And we'll get into that a little bit uh, in this series, but mostly that's going to be in the next series to come. All right, we're going to look at the the covenant. So now we have the the, um, four key events of Genesis, early Genesis. And these are indeed those which shape everything else that follows in the Bible. You have the, the creation here that deals with the origin of things, the fall that deals with the origin of the evil that appears in creation. You have the flood that is an archetype of God's judging sin. And you have the Noahic covenant, which is an archetype we'll see of salvation. The Noahic covenant is the first manifestation of the kingdom of God. In, in a sense, in a crude physical way of security, that the earth has a certain security that is promised by God's word. It is ushered in by this act of worship, which involves a blood sacrifice, and it encompasses a set of promises. Now, what we want to do uh, is look at this event from three perspectives. Um, and I guess maybe the first way of looking at it is to go to Second Peter passage and look at his commentary once again because he sets the framework in which this event should be viewed. Second Peter chapter 3. There's a certain logical sequence to how biblical writers view history. And what Peter does in this passage is he says that there was an old earth, heavens and earth, separated by this flood event. Then there are the heavens and the earth which are now. 
And then there's the end of this world. And, of course, the ushering in of the eternal state. And, of course, there's complications and complexity in this whole thing. There's the reign of Christ, and there's the second advent, and there's aspects of the second advent, and there's the millennium, and so forth. We're not looking at that. We're just telescoping it all for the sake of discussion about the universe tonight into these two points. The reason being that we want to see that there's an analogy. If we label these events A, B, and C, there's an analogy that B is to A as C is to B. So that the eternal state becomes the final and ultimate new universe, perfectly secure from any further judgment. Salvation is finished. It's done. And the original purpose of creation is fulfilled. So that's the final state. But getting there through the process of history, God looks forward when he designs things. And so the event of Noah with the flood and what came afterward relative to Noah's generation, that was salvation. Think about it for a minute. Who passed through the portals of judgment? Who was left at the instant the flood ended? There were eight people. Eight and only eight people there at that point. Were they all saved? Yes, they were. So you have an environment that is totally redeemed. The angelic powers have been put away. I haven't mentioned them. Uh, but there are strange things, and it gets into very complicated passages of Scripture. It gets into Jude, gets into Peter, gets into Genesis 6, about what strange things were going on prior to the flood. And there are some very difficult passages, passages that report that the Beniha Elohim went in to the daughters of men. And some Christian commentators try to smooth that by saying that, well, the, the, the um, sons of God are godly because in some cases that, that terminology tends to be used. Uh, but the problem there is usually people who know their Hebrew know that the construction there emphasizes kind. The emphasis is the sons who are divine over against the women who are human. That's the sense of the, of the construction. Well, now the question comes, what was happening prior to the flood? And weird offspring were occurred in this period of time. And the only thing that I want to say to this is just to kind of um, stimulate maybe some thinking on your part, is did we at that point in earth history have an attempt at what we would now call in our generation genetic engineering? Because you have a definite tampering with the gene pool. If angelic beings are manifesting in, in physical bodies uh, and actually interbreeding with human females uh, and the, producing these weird freak offspring, what have we done? What are we doing in that process? It's not altogether clear. But we have passages and evidence in the New Testament that when Jesus died on the cross and he descended to, to hell, as the, as the Apostles' Creed says, that he went to a particular place in hell and this word is used only for a place in hell called Tartarus. And when he went to Tartarus, it says not that he preached the gospel. It's not Evangelion, but it's Caruso. It's the fact that he made some sort of announcement. So during the time before Jesus rose from the dead, he was busy doing something. 
And again, it's speculation because we are limited to what the Bible tells us. But in some, some way, Jesus descended into hell, made a certain announcements to spirits that were in that section of hell called Tartarus. It's surmised by some theologians and Bible students that what he really was doing there was he was going down and telling them that not only were they defeated, taking, taking the angels who were confined to hell, as Tartar, the, the, the fallen angels in, in this period of time, the spirits that were disobedient in Noah's day, taking them as angelic things and not human beings uh, at Tartarus, that Jesus descended there, announced to them that the salvation had been completed and that basically they were doomed forever. They had failed to stop the Incarnation. No matter how badly they had tried in human history to eradicate, maybe this was a satanic plot to dissolve true humanity. If he could do that, if Satan could do that and really contaminate and mess up the human gene pool, he could stop the Incarnation. A clever move. And if that's really the case of what was going on in Genesis 6, it does make sort of sense that Jesus would go and he would proclaim the victory. He would make a victorious proclamation, an announcement to these very spirits that disobeyed in Noah's time and tried to do this little stunt uh, that, sorry guys, um, I beat you. So there's a, there's a lot to do with that and we can't get into that because all I'm trying to do in this series is go through the basic events and grab the the, the essentials, the meat of the basics of the Christian faith in such a way that we will never, as Christians, be tempted to slink away into our little private religious thing and not openly confess the authority of Scripture as the authority in every area of life. And that's what this whole series is about. So tonight, I want to start, uh, as I point out in the notes, um, with with uh, 2 Peter 3 and just how Peter in verse 7 of 2 Peter 3 points out that the present heavens and the earth by his word are being reserved for fire just as the first world, world number, world letter A here, this world was somehow tied up with water molecules. In other words, water played a massive role in whatever was going on in this in this strange past to our planet. We don't really know. And when I get into the little appendix and when we deal with geology problems, we're going to talk about that a little bit. But there were some strange things going on in the design of this planet prior to the flood. And whatever it was, because notice, for example, in verse um, 5, the last part of verse 5, where the world number A, world letter A here, is talked about. You notice the language in which Peter speaks? He says, the heavens that existed long ago in the earth were formed out of water and by water. So water, as it were, seems to be the original molecule. It seems to be the original substance. And everything else seems to be derivative of water in that situation. Then it says in verse 7, but the present heavens are being reserved for fire. So whatever the structure of our physical universe letter B is, that somehow when the conflagration comes at the end of history, it's going to be in some fiery, uh, fiery explosion. The universe is going to dissolve in fire. It's not going to be a quiet 
uh, death of darkness and cold. It's going to be a, a, a flashing end in, in dissolution down to the molecular level, apparently, in some way. So we're talking cosmic things here. This is not just a little local thing happening in the Mesopotamian Valley. This is a, a statement about the whole heavens and the whole earth here, the whole universe, in both verse 5 and verse 7. That's Peter's rendition of this text. Well, what we want to do, uh, as I said in the notes, we want to come, back, come tonight to the first part of that, going back to Genesis 8, and we want to look at what a covenant is all about. Because this is the first time that the covenant is mentioned. Verse, chapter 9, verse 9. Go back to Genesis then, and we will look at this new word. Never seen this word before, because it's not there in the text. Shows up here for the first time. In one sense, there's no mystery to this word. It's just the word for contract. The word for, uh, for co um, covenant comes from the word for cut. It was used often the, uh, to, to, because of the way they signed their contracts. They got real serious about contracts involving oaths. They did what Abraham did and, and God did, where they would cut an animal in half, uh, put a half over here and a half over here, and walk between them. And there's a lot of discussion about the meaning of what that strange process was all about. And many think that what it was was a self, what we call self-maldiction. In other words, if I, if may, may what happened to these cattle here happen to me if I break this covenant? It was, it was pretty hairy um, weight to the signing of these contracts. So the covenant idea starts with Noah. This is the first one mentioned in the Bible. Now the question is, since this is the first time it occurs, we want to do some thinking about it. So, in the notes, on page 84, I cite Dr. William F. Albright, who taught for many years at Johns Hopkins. And if you look at the first full paragraph on page 84, at the end of that paragraph, this is an extremely important note. You ought to circle it or make a little asterisk in the margin. This is a handy little reference for you. You may need this little tool sometime in sharing your faith with people. Because Albright makes a rather stunning observation about the Bible. Let's look at that quote. The, fa the father of American archaeology, W.F. Albright, makes the stunning observation, quote, Only the Hebrews, so far as we know, made covenants with their God or God's or God. Now that's a simple sentence, but just let's just talk about that for a minute. Why do you suppose that is true? Think of it. All the many religions on the earth and the Old Testament, the Bible, is the only one where there's a contract that goes on between God and man. This is stunning. This is absolutely stunning information. And it ought to set off triggers in our thinking about why does the Bible show man and God in covenant and everywhere else it's not true. So we're going to start, as I do in the notes on page 40, 80, 84, with what are the prerequisites for any contract. Let's just look at it for a minute. Just let's think about an ordinary contract in the, in the real world. Well, obviously, you don't make contracts with a process. 
You make contracts with a person. So now what is this trigger in our thinking about the implications of why do you suppose the Bible and the Bible alone has God entering into covenant? What would be true of the pagan mind that we said again and again and again in this series? What does the pagan mind try to do? Well, it tries to reduce, it destroy the creator-creature distinction, and when you do that, you make God part of the universe, and he becomes a, one of us. He's sort of like Dr. God and Mr. Man, and that's what we are like. We're just different relatively, but we're not different absolutely. He just has more of what we have, that's all. That's what paganism finally does. It cuts God down to size, cutting him from an absolute creator, an infinite personal creator, down to a, a big boy, so to speak, or a superman. And when that happens, remember the text that I had you read back in chapter 3 when we were talking about creation. We went through that text and it was an example uh, uh, the Enuma Elish epic of what pagan literature looked like and how they concede creation. And do you remember the observations we made? We said that there were two features to the pagan doctrines and the religions of this time, and, and still true. One is that the creator-creature distinction is, is submerged, so God just becomes, uh, if he still is around, he becomes just sort of like a super person. So instead of being the creator creature, he, he becomes less than that. He becomes part of the continuity of being with God here, angels here, man here, animals here, rocks here. We're just put sort of on a scale. But the second thing we observed when back in that time when we all sat here and we read that pagan literature of the creation, we said something else happened. Do you remember, does anybody remember that, that passage uh, where I cut it out of the Enuma Elish, and they were they were the gods and the goddesses were going at it for creation, and what did we say about that? We said, "Who's in charge?" Remember that? I said it's like a committee without a chairman. So no, you can't tell for sure whether next year Marduk's going to be on the throne or some other god is going to be on the throne because they're all competing for the throne. They're all big boys. They're all super people. So how do you know which one calls the ball? Well, the, the, the pagan mind has a problem with this, and to keep itself from falling apart, usually what pagan in influences do is they revert to another idea they quickly bring in to save the day, and it's called fate. And fate, or the table of destinies, comes into play. Well, whatever it is, the point is, as far as making covenant, is that this party, we'll call this the God side of the covenant, is missing or very weak in pagan thought. Either it, God becomes a process, like he does in modern thinking, in the beginning was gas, either he becomes a process, or he becomes so weak that who wants to make a covenant with him anyway? So right away, there's something to start connecting in your mentality. You want to see this about our faith. There is no God strong enough to make a covenant. Now, what else do you have to have in order to have a business agreement between two people? Could two people that can't communicate make a business agreement? Companies are going global now. What's the problem with companies going global? What's the big demand now in all these international companies? The people who can speak languages, people who can go over there and talk their language. So if you don't have co communication, you're in trouble again. 
And the second thing that paganism lacks is a God that verbally reveals Himself. We haven't touched much upon this, but paganism, while they'll say they have dreams and visions and so on, there is minus public revelation. There's no thing like that corresponds, for example, in any other religion to what went on at Mount Sinai. No other religion on earth. No other religion on earth has a God who spoke in a valley of a mountain and one million people heard him. No other religion claims that. Buddha doesn't claim that. Confucian doesn't claim that. Taoism doesn't have that. Hinduism doesn't have that. No of the other religions have that. Not a talking God. Not a publicly talking God. Yeah, he may show up in a dream or something, but I mean a public talking, where you could take a tape recorder and hear him and click the tape on and click it off. So the Bible, the, it, it relates back to who God is. You have to have a God who is the creator, who has the power and the authority to enter into covenant agreements that mean anything. And you have to have a God who's going to talk to you in order to get the agreement. And those are fundamentals of our faith. So those are two things before we go into the details of the covenant. I don't want to get all submerged into the details of this thing. Part of the discipline of going through this course is so that you will master the great outlines of our faith, the great basics, the great ideas that are in, uh, can't, you can't compromise, the powerful ideas that collide into the gut of the whole world system. And this is one of those great ideas. The God of Scripture is absolute, He is sovereign, and He publicly speaks. If you don't have those preconditions, you cannot have a covenant. And this is precisely why the Bible alone has a covenant making, and what else does it say of God? A covenant keeping God. Now let's go to this, another little exercise here. We'll get into that a little bit more, into this a little bit more. But I want to continue with just another part of this great idea of the covenant the preconditions, we could call it. We have number one precondition, that he has to have authority, he has to have power. Number two precondition is that he has to publicly reveal himself in order to get terms in the contract. And the third thing about it is, and the third part of this idea is this. Why do two businessmen lock up into a covenant? Why, when you buy a car, do you sign an agreement? Let's think about this. Because this is the first time in the Bible we see a covenant. We don't see the word covenant with Adam and Eve. You see it with Noah. What was the intervening event between Adam and Noah? The fall. What was the fall? He introduced a ruptured relationship. Now, why do you have treaties and business agreements? Think of a treaty. What's the whole deal in Bosnia right now? Why do we have uh, E-8 aircraft of the Air Force constantly monitoring the entire electromagnetic spectrum over Bosnia? Why do we have satellites looking down, reporting every highway junction? What's going on? How many trucks are moving north on this highway? How many people are camped in this area? What's going on here? thought we had an agreement. What do you need besides agreements? Monitoring the agreement. What do contracts do then? What's the whole field in law called contract law all about? It is to verify the faithfulness of the parties. Contracts always involve some form of verification. 
That's why you see the term in the Bible, I am a covenant-keeping God. Now, why do you think God himself would demean himself, as it were, to enter into a covenant with us? What advantage accrues to God, not to us? What advantage do you think accrues to God by having himself come in and he comes up to us and he signs his name on a piece of paper with certain terms, certain promises? What advantage is that for him? Well, think about the argument for the rest of the Old Testament. In prophet after prophet, in the rest of the Old Testament, on into the New, what is the issue again and again? Is God what? Faithful. To do what He has promised. Now, how do you measure God's faithfulness? Think of a contract. What does a contract give you that you can use as a tool to measure faithfulness. It gives you promises. It gives you terms. It gives you something to get your hands on as a yardstick to control behavior. So the covenant is an enormously important thing. This alone, right here, this third part of the great idea, some of you are, are smart enough to, to reason this out and see the implications. I wonder how many people here tonight have noticed, once we introduce this idea of verification, what that tells you that the Christian faith has to say about the Bible. If the Bible becomes a record of God's faithfulness to his contract, what then does that say about whether the Bible is errant or inerrant? It compels a doctrine of inerrancy, doesn't it? What does the Bible become? It becomes part of a legal piece of evidence to which the laws of evidence are applied. So the idea of a covenant immediately implies that the Scriptures have got to be errantless. They have to testify. This also tells you why you turn to Matthew and you see the genealogies and go to sleep before you get out of chapter 1. Why? What do you suppose all that stuff's about? Why, when you go through the book of, of uh, Leviticus and Numbers, this is trying to go into here and there, and gee, that was up the river so-and-so and all the way over to this, and you can for crying out loud, I'm not a cartographer. What do I want all this stuff for? A land survey. Land survey. Ah, that's interesting. Is a land survey connected to the mortgage on your house in some way? Better believe it is. You're getting paying taxes on the basis of it, right? Okay. Now, why do you suppose those land records are in the Scriptures that everybody says, ah, they don't mean a thing? What do you mean they don't mean a thing? Aren't they the records that says that group of people were promised that land and they lived in it and there the boundaries are? So, this, um, this turns on a vast new light under the whole testimony of the Old and New Testament. By the way, what do we call these? The Old and the New what? Testaments. Legal documents. Now, isn't it strange that so many Christians, and this, this is a big discussion in, back in the 70s, I remember this went on in, in evangelical circles, and I couldn't, what is the problem here? We had evangelicals all over the country rethinking the doctrine of inerrancy of the Bible. 
Excuse me? If the Bible has errors in it, how do I measure covenant performance? I can't have... I can't, I've got to have a tool here to measure. I mean, what happens in a courtroom? If some witness comes in, what does the opposing lawyer always try to do to a witness? Make him look like a dork in the court, right? This guy can't remember what he had for lunch. He can't remember what he had for breakfast. He doesn't know what clothes he wore yesterday. And you're telling me you saw so-and-so bang the car into this other person? Come on. Don't believe this person. What's happening? We're demeaning the witness's capability of providing valid information. So, what do you suppose Satan wants to do to the Bible? Destroy it. Because if I can destroy the Bible, I've erased the tool that measures God's faithfulness. No promises, no confirmation. Very simple logic. So all of that is just by way of preliminary remark on how powerful this idea of covenant is. It exists in the Bible and the Bible alone because only the Bible has a God who can make a covenant. It's very simple. And second, the Bible has to be that inerrant legal document that provides evidence of his faithfulness. So now what we want to do on page 84 and following, I go into the parts of a covenant. And wherever you go in the Bible, you look for these four parts. Because I'm going to give an outline and you can follow this outline not just in Genesis, but anywhere in the Bible. In fact, part of this outline is followed, uh, Bill and Mike do it, every communion service. Let's look at the four parts of a covenant. Obviously, Every covenant has the parties to the covenant. Who is signing on this contract? And as you go through the Bible and you see different contracts, the first thing to ask is, who's making this thing? And who's signing on the dotted line? Now let's look at the text in Genesis 9. Genesis 9, verse 9. And ask the question, who are the parties to this new world covenant? Okay? Who's doing the main making? God is. Right? Verse 9. Who's establishing the contract? Is Noah establishing the contract back with God? Well, Noah, what Noah did is he worshipped God in chapter 8, verse 20, 21, 22, right? But Noah's not making any covenant with God. You don't see that. He's not saying, God, now, you know, I'm really not too sure of this deal here. Uh, I'll make this paper up and hold it up to you and you write your, hand, write your signature in it. That's not the way this goes. God makes the covenant. And who does he make the covenant with, by the way? Let's look carefully at the fine print. Who is included in the Noahic covenant? I establish my covenant with you, that's Noah, and with your descendants after you, which is the rest of the human race. So, the parties here to the covenant, God, and all present humanity. Because all present humanity have the genes of Noah and his sons and daughters-in-law. So, I've established my covenant with you. Does this, by the way, mean that believers and unbelievers in the way of covenant? You better believe it. This covenant is made with everyone, Christian and non-Christian. has implications, as we'll see later. I establish my covenant with you, with your descendants after you. Now what else? Verse 10. Who else is included in the terms of this agreement? With every living creature that is with you. 
that comes out of the ark. Notice he's not making it with all the creation. He's making it with the animals that come out of the ark, those which are saved. So all present humanity and all animal life that descended from the ark, put the arrow the other way, that came out of the ark. Those are the parties to the agreement. That may be a tip that many of the species that have died out in history were ones who were not on the ark and there were no promises ever made to them for their continued survival on this planet. Not saying that for sure, but it's an interesting thought here. Now it says in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the flood and so forth. So it's quite clear that the terms of the, the, the parties to the covenant are humans and animals. And that should tell us something about how God is concerned about the environment. This is an ecological dimension to the covenant here. It, it beats Earth Day anytime, hands down. I'd love it. If I were a kid, I'd just love Earth Day because I would just love to talk about Noah and see how far I could push it. Okay. The, sign, the second part is who, what is the sign of the covenant? The sign of the covenant. This is crucial because in different covenants there are different signs. Communion service has a sign to it. That's why every communion service would go through the cup and the, and the bread. This is the sign of the covenant. Remember, Jesus says that. Do this in remembrance of me. That's another covenant. But that wasn't the sign of this one. The sign of this one is in verse 12. And we're going to just think about verse 12 a moment. At the, the rainbow. I put my bow in the cloud. I am making with you. I set my bow in the cloud. The implication there is it wasn't there before. Another testimony of the fact that the old earth was a strange place. No rainbows. Well, how do you get no rainbows? Well, there's a, there may be some physics behind this because in order to get a rainbow, you have to have a raindrop big enough to fall. And it turns out that the raindrop that's big enough to fall has a big enough diameter to create the optical optics necessary for light refraction. You have small fine mist, doesn't make rainbows. You will not see that in a, in a fine drizzle. Or, or, or fog. You'll see coronas. You'll see all kinds of other kinds of what we call glories in the atmosphere, but you won't see that complete refraction over the spectrum. That occurs when and only when you have a droplets of certain sizes. So there are some interesting physics to this, this passage about God signing his name with his covenant. But there's even something more interesting theologically. Hold this place and turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. That's that book you never open halfway through the Old Testament. Very difficult book to uh, interpret. But in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, like Isaiah, sees a great theophany, a great glorious revelation of God in his throne. And in the last verse of chapter 1 of Ezekiel, he mentions the bow. And I want you to see where else the rainbow occurs. In verse 28 of chapter 1, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. 
All right, let's go on to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 3. Again, it's a picture this time, not Ezekiel, but this time the Apostle John. But they are both, Ezekiel and John, have this experience of being able to view the very throne of God Himself. And both these guys report that when they had a chance to look at God's throne, they saw the same thing. And in Revelation 4.3, he who was sitting, was sitting on like a jasper stone of Sardis in his appearance and there was a rainbow about the throne like emerald in appearance. So it had a shading of green in it. Now, Revelation 4 and Ezekiel 1 got to do with the signing of the way of covenant. Where is the archetype of the rainbow? In other words, if we say, remember, well, let's, let's go back a minute. Remember back in the creation narrative and I said that man was made in the image of God both in body and in spirit? I remember that caused a little discussion. And then I said that it's not that God, it's not that we should speak of an anthrop like man. We should really revert and invert that kind of thinking and speak of ourselves as theomorphs in that as images of God, we are theomorphic. It's not that God is anthropomorphic. It's not that He's patterned after us. We're patterned after Him. It's precisely the reverse. We are theomorphs. So in the creation, there are analogs to the prior forms that God had. We could go on, for example, talk about animals. It's very interesting. Angels always show up with animal forms. And you could make the case, and I have to my veterinarian son just to see what his reaction would be, that animals really are designed from angel parts because the angels pre-existed them, apparently in creation, and they have parts that look like bird wings and, and eagles and they're described in terms of animal forms. So the inference you have since they were prior is that that form that we think was, and we're taught by our pagan teachers that this is just a uh, just accidental result of natural selection, uh, that's not an accidental form. The form of a cat, a mouse, a dog, a bird is patterned after ideas in the mind of God. And He designed other parts of the universe like those things. Angels were designed like those things. So, these Forms that we observe are not chance-born forms. They're not accidental collocations of molecules. They are forms that come out of God's mind. Well, what I'm getting at tonight here is that the rainbow is seen at the throne of God. Now, it was obviously that it had been there probably forever because God is forever. So therefore, what is the source of the rainbow? Now, let's think, let's do it theologically. Where does the rainbow get its form from? It gets its form from the throne of God. The very optical phenomena that our eyeballs see out there in the sky, and the rule to see a rainbow, if you ever want to see it, is always put your back to the sun and look, because it's always going to be 180 degrees away from the sun on a rainy day. So the rainbow is a physical analog to the glory of God on His throne. That's why that is a sign given to man. And it's given to all men everywhere because God is God of all men everywhere. It's stunning to think of this. Next time you go out and see a rainbow, it should be a worshipful experience. 
Because when you look at that bow in that cloud, you only see pieces of it, usually. A bow, actually, a rainbow, you get high enough in airplanes because it's a circle. But you can't see a circle when you're on Earth, so you only see it. It looks like a hemisphere. So you have just maybe a piece, just a fragment of that bow. But when you think of that, just think what Ezekiel and John the Apostle are reporting. That's what they saw when they looked at God himself. So this is his own personal signature that has been given into our atmosphere. The atmosphere, as it were, has been branded with his glory. It's not just an optical phenomenon. It's not, I mean, you don't exhaust it by just saying, ooh, that's interesting optics. No, you, where did the optics come from? Why that color? Okay, so much for the signs. So God signs His contracts in many stunning ways. And all the ways He signs His signature are glories of Himself. The third thing... A lot of the books of the Bible can be thought of ultimately as testimonies that harp back to covenants. Um, I'll give you a, a, a quick example of just how crucial this is to understanding parts of the Old Testament. One of the covenants given was a mosaic, the Mosaic Law, Mosaic Law Covenant. You lead the fine. You do certain things, I'm going to do this to you. You disobey, and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Now, what's striking is that you can take the curses of the law in the book of Deuteronomy, make your list of all the cursings, then go read 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, the history of the prophets, and watch what they're talking about and make a list. And then take the two lists and put them together. And guess what you find? you find that the prophets are talking about the curses that have come upon the nation, specific terms of that Mosaic Covenant. It ties together the study of the whole Old Testament. And if you really want to see how this comes out, hold the place here a moment and turn to Isaiah 1. Because Isaiah was a prophet who the liberals always like to say, well, he was a great social prophet. Well, yeah, he was, but he, he basically was a lawyer for God. And... If you look at verse 2 of Isaiah 1, look who he appeals to. Now, that, that is so little. It's just a little verse there. And when you read it, because you're so interested in everything else, you just whip by verse 2 and never pay attention to what that clause says. But that's a stunning clause in verse 2 of chapter 1. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manager, but Israel does not know and my people do not understand. It's a lament by God himself before witnesses. Now the stunning thing is, you take the O heavens and the O earth of verse 2 of Isaiah 1 and go back to Moses in Deuteronomy 28 and 32 and you'll see that when the covenant was installed, the heavens and the earth were to be the witnesses of that covenant. And so when the prophets come centuries later to indict the nation on the basis of that covenant, they go back and they appeal to the witnesses for the courtroom. It's a legal case. It's called a reeve proceeding from the word lawsuit. And a lot of passages in the Old Testament are actually no, more than just complaints. They're not just a prophet going like this at the people. That's not, it, it, that's, you know, that's in there. 
But the structure of the Old Testament is a harping back to a legal proof of, of, of violation of these terms. These men are not operating in a moral ethical vacuum. They are operating inside a previously written and agreed upon agreement. Okay, so let's go back. We're not worried about Moses' covenant, but it, I just did that to show you the type. Let's look at the terms, then, of the Noahic covenant back in Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, he is very clear on the terms. What the terms are, what the terms aren't. In verse 11, it says, not that all flesh shall never be cut off. It says that all flesh shall never be cut off again by the waters of a flood. Very specific. Neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Two things, the flesh and the earth. So every other weather disaster in history that will ever happen, whether it's the hurricane tides of Bangladesh or wherever it may be, in the Mississippi Delta, be it whatever, there will never, ever again be a geological disturbance that violates either of those two terms in verse 10. So these two terms of the covenant establish a geophysical system of verification. If there were ever a geologic disturbance that did this, that covenant would be broken. That is meant to be enforced forever. It will never be challenged and nothing can ha happen that will violate that. There are certain physical problems now that we'll get into in the next handout of notes that were passed out today. That has stunning implications about the physics of the rest of the universe. But the point is that that covenant cannot be violated. And the terms, obviously, are quite clear and above board. Let's see how that carries out. If you'll turn to Isaiah 54, this covenant is referred to as a basis for all other covenants. In other words, if God is faithful geophysically, then God can be faithful spiritually. And once again, I point out to you, the Bible is not talking just about people's religious experiences. Don't retreat to that ground. You yield all the external world to the pagans, and then you start talking about religious experiences in your heart, as though God doesn't rule outside of your heart. Wrong. God is a public God. And in Isaiah 54, 9, look at the logic of verse 9. Look at the logic of it. This is embedded deep within the prophetic structures of the Old Testament. For this, and, and let's go back to verse 8. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face for you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I have compassion on you. So says the Lord, your Redeemer. And by the way, in the Hebrew, there's two words for love, and one of them is hesed, and it's that word translated in your Bibles as loving kindness. And that word is more technical than that. The word hezed means faithfulness to a covenant. Example, boy meets girl. Boy falls in love with girl. Boy in Hebrew loves girl. That's one verb. Boy loves girl. Boy marries girl. Husband loves wife. That word's different. It's hezed. Why is that? Because there's a covenant. Different word. 
So there's a technical term here used in the Old Testament. And again, it's gooed over because people don't think about what we're reading. We're so familiar with it, we just, whoa, wait a minute, what's happening? The word everlasting loving kindness is powerful in verse 8 because he says, I will forever adhere to my covenants that I have told you about. Everlasting. I never will break them. That's what's going on here. Now, what does he use as a sign? Verse 9. He harps back, this, that's what he's talking to Israel in Isaiah's day, this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again, so I have sworn I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. The eternal security of Israel is grounded on the verification of the Noahic covenant. So if this covenant doesn't hold, we're in deep trouble. Now, let me pause for just a moment here and show you the ridiculousness of the accommodating school of Bible interpretation. These people always want to localize the flood. Do any of you see a problem with this? Yeah. If, I, if the Noahic flood was local, there have been some other locals once in a while, right? Now what do we do to the whole, the whole justification for the Noahic covenant? goes down the drain. You can't have a local flood in the book of Genesis. It's already been violated. So you have to, if you're going to interpret the text seriously, you have to hold to a global flood. No way around it. You tear down all the covenants, and this is a, a typical verse, verse 9, in the Old Testament where you tear down one covenant, you torn them all down. And isn't it interesting, Jesus goes back to this, because when he talks about his advent, what is he, what is he as in the days of Noah? See, it's a primary event, that, that big, great flood. Okay, let's look at one other place in the Old Testament, and then another place in the New. So, we're in the Old Testament, turn over to Psalms 29. This is a praise psalm of David. But in the, in the Hebrew language, there's one special vocabulary word used in this psalm that refers, cannot refer to anything else than the flood of Noah. In, in Psalm 29, it starts out with praise, Ascribe to the Lord, O ye sons of the mighty, that's an address to the angels. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Now... What is the emphasis in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9? Voice of God, 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 voice of God. What does that tell you? The publicly revealing, speaking God of Scripture. And then it concludes in verse 10 as it moves from worship to exhortation and practical application because practical, verse 11 is the practical application of the song. In verse 10, the Lord sat as a king at the tabul. And this is the word for flood. It is used exclusively for the, Mosaic, the, Noahic, uh, the flood of Noah. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. If the Lord can control the chaos of the flood, I have full confidence that he will give his strength to his people. See the argument? It goes from the greater to the lesser. If he can globally control and restrain and promise things, then surely he can deal with my problem. 
I mean, he's got geophysical molecules by the billions that he's working on, magnetic fields, gravity, and everything else. And, you know, and I've got my little pimple here. So that's the logic of these covenants. Now, keep in mind verse 10 and what it tells you about the God of Scripture. And now turn to the New Testament to Mark chapter 4. If God's characteristic is that he can quell the powers of chaos, what happens, do you suppose, in this little incident in the Gospel of Mark? In verse 38 of Mark 4, it's Jesus in the boat in the Sea of Galilee. Now, here's an example, people, of why if you don't read the Old Testament, you will never understand the New Testament. The New Testament has subtleties to it that are closed completely to anybody ignorant of the Old Testament. Now, you can get a lot out of the New Testament just reading. I'm not knocking it. But I'm saying that the, Old Test the New Testament is addressed to people who are schooled in the Old. After all, who is it written to first? Jewish Christians. And they knew the Old Testament cold. Well, now, think of the Noahic episode, Psalm 29, and all this in verse 38. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep in the cushion. They awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the look at what happened. The wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it you have no faith? Now, you see, the rebuke wasn't that they were supposed to calm the storm. What's the rebuke? Hey, I'm sleeping here. It doesn't bother me. And I got you, boys, that water's not going to do anything. Because you know who's here in the boat? You know the guy that made the promise back there to Noah? That's me. Those waves aren't going to do anything in Galilee. Because I control them. And that's exactly what the disciples have because look at their reaction in verse 41. Then they became very much afraid. Why do you suppose they became very much afraid? As good Jewish guys, you suppose they read the story of Noah? They grabbed it. They knew exactly. This is one of those passages where the deity of Jesus is clearly proclaimed if you have the eyes to see it. If you know your Old Testament, you know very well what's going on in this text. It's subtle. Jesus doesn't come and say, see, I'm the God, I'm the Noah's God here. It's much more subtle than that. Because Jesus didn't go around saying that. When Jesus presented his person, the people who looked at this Jewish carpenter and said, Wow, this guy's no man. Look at what he just did. Remember back in the synagogue when we read the Torah and we're talking about who sits on the king of the waters here? Did you see what he just did? He stopped them. All he did was speak voice, the voice, the voice, the voice, and who sits on the flood. So here, this is one of those neat, exciting passages in the New Testament that assumes, that assumes that we all know the old. Okay, last and final section tonight, we want to just conclude, and that is as we come, the founding sacrifice. Every covenant is made with sinful man, and therefore every covenant is grounded on the sacrifice. Obviously, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 22, you have that great act of worship by Noah. You also remember, how many of the clean animals did Noah bring aboard the ark? Not two, but seven. Why do you suppose he had more clean animals than unclean? Because he had to use them right away. 
And so therefore he had to have a greater supply of these animals that would be used in sacrifice. So the last, last point here is that the Lord, and, and notice the words in Genesis 8, the Lord smelled that sacrifice and he was satisfied. You know what the word satisfy? There's another word in the New Testament used for that. It's called propitiate. Propitiation, big theological term. But what it means is God smells. He smells the pleasantness of Noah, the pleasantness of the animals. Probably not. I don't think the ark smelled too good right about then. God isn't smelling them. He's smelling the sacrifice that was given to him. That's what makes him satisfied, not their B.O. All right, so the sacrifice, when you look at a, all covenants in the Bible have these four elements. And it'll help you to line up study of the scriptures, thinking through, wait a minute, where's the sacrifice here? And you can come to the new covenant and you can run this whole schema through. But it's throughout the scriptures. So what we're going to do is we're going to stop here tonight with this exposition of the covenant. And next week, we're going to go on to the implications of this covenant for nature. And the week after that, we're going to deal with the implications of this covenant for man. Because we're dealing with a whole new world here. And it's going to be dealt with in terms of a covenant or a contract. And so we get more and more as we go on in Genesis, more distinctively biblical. And the elements of the Bible come much more clear, clearly into focus. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you have provided a framework for us that you demonstrate and are willing to risk your reputation by making public statements and making claims that can be openly verified by historical observation. And that we, as, as Christians, can rest our faith not on speculation, not on hypotheses, but we have the data of history that testifies to your faithfulness. And we thank you tonight for being covenantly faithful to us. In his name, amen. Um, if any of you have any questions that you'd like to chit-chat about, uh, we have about ten minutes here. Um, and then we can... Uh, deal with anything that you'd like to develop or talk to or address, uh, scripture passages. Um, I'll just... Yeah. <laughs> just want to relax here. Um, what we talked about tonight... Um, is a real fundamental piece of the Bible. And this, this whole idea of covenant is something that's uh, very powerful. Um, it's the key to understanding a lot of the Bible and why uh, we, we are so adamant in fundamental circles about an inerrant Bible. Uh, it shows why liberal theology can't work because in liberal theology, God never reveals himself because he can't. He mumbles, but he doesn't speak. And as long as that's the case, and it's just playing shadow games with God, then you can't develop any theology. You don't have any yardstick to measure his behavior. And so the whole thing goes down the drain. So that's why this whole part of the Bible is important. You can start to see, as you advance now into the Old Testament, that structures begin to set into place. 
and they're never abandoned from the rest of the Bible. None of those creation structures we talked about in Genesis 1 have been changed in the flood. They've been hurt by the fall, but they haven't been changed. They haven't been eradicated. And as we come up uh, next week, we're going to deal with nature and the implications scientifically for what this covenant means, powerful implications. Uh, when we get into man, we're going to see there's a whole new institution that comes into existence here. And people have speculated for years as to the issue of capital punishment, the issue of where did that come from. Um, and that's a whole institution. That's the civil government, the civil authority. It's originated not originally. It's a post-fall institution. And we're going to talk about that institution. So these are the structures that are always debated socially and so on. You have people, uh, you know, in the hippie movement in the 60s, it was a big thing. They followed Rousseau, and Rousseau had the idea that uh, people, uh, what, what we call sin, uh, came about because we, we got too civilized, we, we got too involved with contracts, constitutions, and this sort of stuff, and the solutions get back to nature and to simple life and so forth. And uh, the answer to that is, it was all simple before the flood. And it resulted in one of the most violent episodes human history has ever seen. Anarchy doesn't work. It was an experiment that was tried for 1,600 years and failed. So whenever there's, there's uh, somebody complaining about the government, uh, that the government's sinful, sure it is. It was established after the fall, not before it. It was established because of the fall. And it's going to err. But the alternative to civil government is anarchy. And anarchy is what terminated this globe at one point. So there's no sympathy. God has no sympathy for anarchists. Absolutely none. And there's a political philosophy now, you see, that begins to develop here. What is, what is power all about? What does political power and cultural power have to do with it? It's, it starts with Noah. So that's where we're headed. And, and you can begin to see these structures. And that's why um, the, the scriptures when looked at this way, are, are really exciting because they apply to every area of life. I mean, think... Depends what, which pagans, you know. But Rousseau and these other guys, not believing the Bible at all, just argue that civil government is arbitrary. And it was an institution that was instituted uh, perhaps as a mistake. But uh, it's, uh, it's just uh, fundamentally unnecessary. Anarchists believe that government is absolutely unnecessary, or they wouldn't be anarchists. Um, and the whole argument of this passage of Scripture, this portion of Scripture, is yes, it is necessary. Which would you rather have, a dictatorship or a, or a mob? And that's the ultimate answer. And the answer is, of course, a dictatorship. It's always preferable to a mob. And, and that's, that's the result of all this. There is a certain philosophical thing that happens. It doesn't solve political problems, but it just gives you the setting for it. Yes, Mike? Charlie, um, legally, any contract has to be signed by both parties. And so far, by reading this, all I see is God signing off on it and giving it to Noah, saying, here's the contract. Mm -hmm. So, I know Noah built an altar, but that was before the covenant. That's right. So, where is man's part in honoring God's a very good question. Well, this is a good question. There are two kinds of contracts that God makes with men. There are the unconditional covenants and the conditional ones. And, and they're different because the conditional covenants men sign. They really do. Um, but in these biblical covenants, the only parties that sign it are the parties that are, do, are making promises. 
And what's stunning about this covenant is man's not making any promise. Did you notice what God said to Noah as he was sniffing the sacrifice? Anybody notice what he said? It was a very melancholy analysis of humanity. And I, I love this text because Paul didn't write it. You know, so often people think, oh, it's just that bachelor Paul. And the guy, he, you know, he had all kinds of problems in his life or something, and he, he was so depressed that he had this bleak view of the sin nature. Well, if you think Paul had a bleak view of the sin nature, then what do you do about this passage where God is speaking right at the point where Noah's worshiping? That's what's so stunning about this thing. Right in the middle of this, this worship thing, see, it comes in the right sense. Verse 21 of Genesis 8, The Lord smelled a smoothing, soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, and by the way, if he said it to himself, how did Noah know about it? Uh, it probably revealed later. But it's interesting that probably at this first point, um, all Noah got was that God was pleased with the sacrifice. But what God was saying in his heart is, I will never curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man is for youth, and I will never again destroy. Notice the sentence. I will never curse the ground on account of man. And it sounds like it's a non sequitur. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's a pretty bleak analysis of man. And then he makes the covenant, and man doesn't sign it. I would say the answer to you, Mike, is that because he doesn't trust that we can keep a covenant. Uh, his analysis of us is, is that way. It's spiritually, you, you were in such bad shape, I wouldn't make a covenant with you because you couldn't keep it. And, and it wasn't done in the Old Testament. And, and that was the engagement at Sinai because there the people did sign on the dotted line and they were condemned for it every century afterward. So it's an elegant theological statement as to who saves who. If it's us that sign on to a salvation covenant, you're bringing in good works because now you've got a performance standard. And there's no performance standard for Noah here. This is not to say God's not interested in holiness and righteousness, but he's holding himself to the standard, not Noah. With that particular issue or others? Well, the, the, the answer to that business of literalness of interpretation is the same as the same... The, the people who raise that don't think too carefully about literature in general. When you read a sonnet by Milton or you read your newspaper, don't you know which is to be taken literally and which is to be taken figuratively? You do, because you, it's inherent to anyone who's a language-speaking being that we use metaphors. Um, daily, we use metaphors. 
and illustrations. So figurative speech is always used poetically and in everyday speech. And people who speak and think shouldn't have too much problem communicating because they themselves use metaphors. I mean, um, Oh, okay. In terms of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, the answer to that is simple, that the Mosaic Covenant doesn't apply to the church. The church and Israel are distinct. And, and the end, Christ was the end of the law. And that was the argument that was going on in the book of Acts because the church was expanding. It was largely Jewish. We forget that because the early church was basically Jewish. It was a Jewish cult. And Gentiles didn't come into Christianity until some time later. And as the Gentiles began to come in, the book of Acts, it created big problems because the Jews, the early Christians, were keeping the Mosaic Law. And you remember what happened was that Peter and Paul had a little fallout over this issue because Paul was out there evangelizing and his churches that he started, though he started them often in a synagogue, became very quickly Gentile-dominated churches. And when they did... The Gentiles had no concept of, of eating kosher meat. Hey, what's the problem here with you guys? You know, that's a good Jewish thing. And so that cre the diet created the issue of Acts 15. And you have it clearly stated that it's no longer an issue. And that God's grace has come forward. We have the creation of this new thing called the church. The Jew-Gentile distinction is not saying that Jews can't adhere to the if they wish. But there's no command any longer once in Christ to adhere to these things. And Hebrew Christians, I've known several of them in my life, several outstanding Hebrew Christians, and they've grappled with this personally in their own lives. I mean, does a Jewish male have to be circumcised now? Uh, does a Jewish uh, man submit to Passover and the regular Jewish feasts? And a lot of the Hebrew Christians will continue those traditions as cultural vehicles to reach their own communities, their own Jewish communities. What about the Ten Commandments? Ten Commandments are all rephrased. Nine of the Ten Commandments are rephrased in the New Testament. I'm trying to remember specifically But when you get those, D, when you get those kind of questions, um, they're oftentimes... Well, and, there, and, and those kind of questions that, you know, they're kind of, I don't know, I always consider those kind of little nitpicky things. That, you know, are, are people really being serious when they ask those kind of questions? I mean, if they really are serious, then we have to sit down and give them serious answers. But a lot of times they're just trying to put you off um, about that. But the, the, it's the, the covenants, the Noahic covenant is still in force. The Mosaic covenant isn't. The Abrahamic covenant is. The Palestinian covenant is, and, and the Jews are still debating it. I mean, there's a Jewish party in Israel today. This is what this argument about retreat off of the, off the West Bank is all about. Because there are Jews today who hold that that West Bank all the way to Jordan is biblical Israel. And the guy that was the great uh, Menachem Begin was the guy that held to that. He was the one that, remember, got the Jewish colonies all over there into the, now that Arafat's taken over that area. Why did he do that? He says, this is Aretz Israel. This is the land of Israel. And we're going to walk all over it. God gave it to us and we intend to take it. And they don't like it, lump it. And, and that's their attitude. So there's a whole party in Israel that does that. And then there's the hyper-Orthodox party in Israel, the guys with the beards and stuff. And they don't believe that they can do that, which is significant, until Messiah comes. They're still waiting on the Messiah. And they refuse to support Israel. 
And in the 1948 war, the Hasidim, the, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, sided with the Arabs against their fellow Jews. And their reason wasn't because they loved the Arabs, it was because they felt that no Jew could make the demand of the Palestinian covenant if the Messiah wasn't there to enforce the covenant. So those questions of the Old Testament have come up again and again. Just real quick, I find one thing is usually that the person asking the question has no concept of what the scripture actually says. A lot of times so vague we haven't read up one. I'll give an example that I got hit with was, do you believe that if your child's unruly that you should stone him to death? Okay. And yes, that passage is there, but when you read the passage, it says specifically if you have an unruly child, you take it to the elders. And if the elders find one, well, then the elders find it, not you. So it's a court proceeding. Yeah, when you, so when you get a question like this, you know where the scriptures go back to it, but 99% of the time the person asking the question has no concept of what right. they believe. So still, I still feel like there should be a, an answer given to those people that at least make them think. What you know, even if they're trying to discredit or whatever they're trying to Yeah, and I think the answer is, is ultimately, like Mike says, is you go back to the context of where this thing came from that you're talking about. Could it come, if it comes out of the Mosaic Law, that was addressed to Israel, not addressed to the church. If it comes out of the New Testament epistles, and the particular one you're talking about is 1 Corinthians 11, and that's the one where the church gets greasy on it. It really is. That's a very difficult passage, and, and good Bible students stumble on that one. And I don't pretend to know the exegesis of all that one. That's that one you quoted about the women, the authority. The question is whether those are hats or whether it's hair. And, it, and it, the whole thing hinges on this. And then you get woven. If that wasn't hard enough in First Corinthians, then you get in the middle of the passage and you get the angels sitting there walking down the aisles there in church service. And you go, wait a minute, what do I do with that? So there's a lot to those things. But I think it, the basic answer you give is let's look at the context. Let's turn to the context and see what is being talked about here. And with Mike's case, this is a good illustration because that was a quotation out of criminal law proceedings that protected society from uh, raising monsters. You know, if the person hasn't learned how discipline and authority by the time they're 18 or 19, basically the, the attitude of the Mosaic Law is get rid of them. I mean, it's cruel. It sounds very cruel to us. But it's, if had had been enforced, uh, it would have been a lot, you know, you'd had a law-abiding society. No. Any other questions? Discussion? Okay. Well, next week we'll work with, uh, with the implications of the covenant.